Black McLeod called Style Wars off of an album of hers called This Week. And we started off this little set with Elephant Man and Head Gone Wine Up Yourself off of his album Good To Go, put out by VP Records. I think that's about it. I'm going to play a short little ID for you and then it's on to the Living Writers. So please, as always, stay tuned. WCBN FM and... Arbor. WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Liberty, justice, equality. Maybe in the 21st century. I'm having the same problem. I burn the flag for you, baby. My God, what's that? I've never heard anything like it. Good afternoon. My name is Ashley David, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Uim Akpan. Uim Akpan is from Nigeria and holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Prior to coming to Michigan um, to complete his degree, which he did last year, he was an English teacher and vice principal for the University Admissions at Loyola Jesuit College in Nigeria and guest priest at Cathedral of the Twelve Apostles in Abuja. A Jesuit priest as well as a fiction writer, Uim's debut fiction piece in The New Yorker came out in the summer of 2005, An Xmas Feast, and then the following summer, this last summer, My Parents' Bedroom came out. Currently, he's a fellow um, doing, he's the Careers in the Making Fellow at the Humanities Institute. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> That's a mouthful. I'm so nervous. <laughs> I told you before the interview started that I was like, oh my goodness, I can't interview you, Um. <laughs> I've giggled over, across tea at you for the last you two years. You show this on the radio? <laughs> exactly. This is, the, this is live radio, drive time. Okay. <laughs> when I first asked you, asked you to do this interview, you said, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm used to being in your chair, not mine. <laughs> so, so we're both a little nervous. <laughs> in any case, it's, a, it's wonderful to have you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. It's a real treat. Well, we usually start the show with um, a bit from someone's from the the guest's work and so i wonder if you would read the beginning of baptizing the gun which you've told me is a work in progress um but that it was serialized in the nigerian guardian and then published in hakina review in 2001 and you're reworking the story currently for resubmission yeah yes yes thank you thank you for your warm introduction again um this was the first story i published in nigeria uh then it was called Soaking the Gun. <laughs> then it got christened to, uh, re-christened to uh, baptizing the gun. A woman passenger starts to scream in the Molue bus in front of my beat-up Volkswagen, introducing another ripple of confusion into the mid-morning Lagos traffic. She jumps out, 
Squatting by the roadside, she tilts her head so the blood dripping from her torn ear wouldn't soil her dress. Someone reached into the bus to steal her earring, tearing her ear in the process. A group of child hawkers whose schools are on strike is drumming consolations into the other ear. Each time I try to move my car, there are at least two motorcycles before me. The traffic stops. Up front, there is a throng of people chanting and dancing. They carry amulets, clubs, and local hunting rifles. They are members of Odua People's Congress. They say Lagos belongs to the Yorubas, so others should know they are just guests. They say they shall not tolerate armed robbers or corrupt police officers anymore, and that it's their turn to rule Nigeria. Well, this madness could have happened in Onicha or Abuja or Ntaudengwang. I console myself after waiting for 30 minutes for them to pass. Besides, it's not my first time in Lagos. I'm on leave from my parish in the Niger Delta, where multinational companies have more oil wells than the indigenous have water closets. After one of those oil fires that often kill hundreds of my fellow villagers and the mass burials, I came over so I might visit some relatives of the dead. I'm driving my friend's car. I sure know Lagosians, and Grandpa used to say, if you know the people, you know the place. Without much trouble, I've already smelt out the black market patrol crooks. I dipped my fingers into the juice and smelled it to make sure before paying them. Now my watch says 10.30, and traffic is worse. Suddenly, people are jumping out of Moluwe's even drivers, to see the boy struggling in the bonfire on the road. The earring thief has been caught, ringed with tires, doused in petrol and set ablaze. The fire grows steadily, and as the stomach pops, the flames leap and scatter as if to catch the entrails. There is great rejoicing in the mob. No matter the level of fuel scarcity, there is always enough for the thief now there's no road anymore. All vehicles attempt to turn at once. I should have begged my friend to accompany me. I should have put on my Roman collar, as my bishop likes his priests to do. Perhaps some Catholic Lagosian would have had mercy on me. Ah, no, such thoughts wouldn't help me now. I smile to myself toward of the street urchins who are beginning to take an interest in my confused driving. I wrangle my way through Puarisola to High Brauikui. I see the blue tides of the Atlantic wash up in white effervescent bubbles. I come to industrial Apapa, a jugular slums, popular through Olere. Eh, Lagos is great, carefree. There are posters everywhere heralding democracy. My car begins to choke. It's one gloomy part of Lagos. God, please, don't let this car die on me here. I know very little about cars. My car dies. It's 6.03 in the evening. 
Thank you very much. That's Uem Akpan reading from Baptizing the Gun, a story that is um, still in progress, but originally published um, when, in 2001, yeah? 2000. 2000 and 2001. 2001. So what do you mean then when you say it's still in progress? Are you reworking or? <laughs> I came to Michigan. I learned a lot of new things. And I am basically going back to all the stories I had written, which have not even not been collected yet. And seeing how I can use my knowledge here and rewrite the stories and make them feel better. Yeah. So that's why it's still work in progress. In progress yeah. And of course, I still have to go back to Nigeria in the light of this rewriting and do the research so that um, my country, people will not throw me out of the country. <laughs> <laughs> and say, no, that's not the way it's done. Um, you, you, um, said in a, you're quoted in a, an interview that you gave with The New Yorker in 2005 as saying that, I think fiction allows us to sit for a while with people we would rather not meet. Um, it's And before that, you precede the sentence with, um, it is scary and painful and the world is not looking. Um, that is to say things that are going on in Africa and going on elsewhere. Um, you were mentioning there um, about Darfur and Sierra Leone. You often um, write from the perspective of children. This story that you just read a bit from is is from the perspective of an adult. Yes. And um, <laughs> I wonder if you talk a little bit about, um, as you're thinking, now that you've finished your degree here at the University of Michigan and you're working on a collection of stories for Little Brown, um, all told from the perspective of children in different parts of Africa. Mm -hmm. um, are you thinking to tell stories uh, mostly from the perspective of children or are you also sort of working out ideas from adult characters and it's just that currently one of your big projects is about children? Um, as far as this uh, collection is concerned, uh, it will be about children. Um, it will be five uh, five pieces, uh, two novellas, uh, two short stories, and one short shot. Uh, I think three of them, or two of them, have uh, this uh, first-person narrator. Uh, one of them has a second-person narrator. And the last has uh, a limited third-person narrator. Um, so while I have other uh, pieces in progress, like novels in progress, that will be, you know, you'll see many adult characters in those novels. Uh, basically, at this point, I'm very interested in the situation of uh, children and how the larger forces in the world impact them, especially these days in Africa. Well, let's talk a little bit about that then. Um, we're going to circle back and focus exclusively on on that toward the end of the show. But um, right now, I'd like it sort of leads me to a question about callings. And many people who are um, ministers or priests talk about their work in the church as a, a calling. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, many artists <coughs> and writers talk about being called to write stories. Um, in your case, you were both a priest and a writer. Would you talk a little bit about how you have felt called to do your work, which includes these two big parts? Uh, yeah, I, I have always loved stories. Uh, I never thought of myself as a story writer. 
and actually hated literature in in secondary school because of poetry. I, I, I mean, why why couldn't the poet say this is a cup and it will be a cup? <laughs> right. so, <laughs> because no, it's not a cup. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very difficult for me in in secondary school. So I dropped literature. Uh, but you know, when I joined the Jesuits in 1990, and uh, you know, after some years. I began to think about literature and even began to write poems, you know, embarrassingly, you know, hiding this from those friends I had been <laughs> telling that I hated literature. Since second grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you're a poet. Why isn't yeah. it a couple? <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I was thinking I would, you know, I, sh I wanted to talk about issues in Africa. Um, and at first I thought poetry would be the way to go. Essays would be the way to go. It's only when my 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 essays were rejected by the Guardian newspaper in Nigeria that I turned to to um, to fiction because I saw they were publishing fiction every Saturday, uh, and I picked up and I saw this and I'm like, oh, maybe I could you know steal some space from this man. So I worked for months and uh, took the piece to the Guardian. On a Wednesday, the following Saturday, they gave me a quarter of a page. <laughs> so I was, you know, very, you know, very excited. And uh, I now began to write very, you know, furiously at a furious pace, hoping that I could present, you know, my ideas, you know, through fiction uh, and reach a much wider, you know, audience. And the the fact that The Guardian you know, which is the national paper in Nigeria. National newspaper had, you know, picked my story and they liked it. Though the quality was very bad at that point, um, it gave me a lot of uh, consolation and, uh, you know, the energy to, you know, to to continue. Um, now, in the Jesuits, we have this long-abiding tradition uh, of writing, um, and. Um, We've had writers throughout our history, uh, but there are a few prominent ones like uh, Father uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, who is a who is a poet. A poet. Yeah, yeah. and Jesuits have written almost about everything. Um, so I felt I was doing something, there's something new to me, but something known to you know to the Society of Jesus. Um, so, but still, at, you know, even at that, it was a difficult, you know, thing to manage because I was in the seminary uh, and I had to think of how to give, you know, a, a, both callings, you know, a balance and uh, the emphasis they needed. Um, is that working out all right? Are you finding a, a good way to balance it or is it is it still a struggle? Yeah, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's uh, a struggle, but I'm more comfortable right now. Even in the seminary, when I was not as comfortable as I am right now, uh, I was very determined um, because I I felt something had to be said, um, and I normally had to start work around ten thirty or eleven at night. 
uh, when I I would have done my theology studies, uh, gone for recreation with other seminarians, done my apostolic work, uh, and then when people were basically going to bed, I would you know go do my writing. Of course, that's when the community computers were free, so I'll do it like three in the morning, and then I would need like three alarm clocks to wake up in the morning and go to class. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ringing madly. Well, it's yeah. it's time for us to take a short break, but we'll be right back in a few minutes. You are tuned into the Living Writer Show on WCVN FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Uem Akpan. We'll be right back. listening to The Living Writers Show on WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Uim Akpan, and we're talking about, um, we've been talking about callings and um, the work of uh, being a priest and the work of being a writer and how those things get juggled. Um, I wonder now if we can sort of transition into talking about um, your work in terms of writing Africa or writing about Africa. Your stories currently are all written about parts of Africa, but not necessarily the parts that you're from. Um, the story that appeared in The New Yorker two summers ago was set in on the streets of Nairobi, a street family living on the streets of Nairobi, um, the this, this story called An Xmas Feast. And the story that came out this past summer in The New Yorker um, called My Parents' Bedroom was set in Rwanda during the um, genocide, the, the Hutsi, Hutsi, uh, Hutu Tutsi um, murders and genocide. Um, in the mid '90s, so and the story that you started the show off with is, of course, set in in the streets of um, Nigeria, Nigeria Lagos. and Lagos. Yeah. So you kind of move all over a very large <laughs> continent, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you come, f- um, you fall into a tradition of uh, uh, Nigeria has a a, a, tr- a rich tradition of of <coughs> literature and writing. Wolese Yinka, who, who was the first African to win the Nobel Peace Prizes from Nigeria, mm-hmm. Buchi Amicheta, um, Chinua Achebe, um, and the list goes on. Yeah. Um, you, 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 um, but different from um, some of the folks whose footsteps you're following in, you're taking on the whole continent. <laughs> 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 Would you talk a little bit about your, your choices for how and where to set your stories? How and where? How and where to set your stories? Okay, okay. Uh, please let me go back to our last uh, conversation. While I can look at the Jesuit tradition and, you know, come to these stories with the conviction that this is something we have done over the centuries, um, I want to say also that uh, this uh, creative writing uh, uh, stuff has really helped me in my priesthood 
you know, in the way you, in, you know, say in, in, in homilies and how you reach out, you know, to the, to the people. Uh, people ex- expect their priest to know a lot and be able to minister to them. Um, and so I, I, approaching, I approach their stories with, you know, some sacredness, what is happening in their lives. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to No, say. well, that actually is, is I'm glad you, you um, resurrected that topic because um, <laughs> I was going to ask you before the break, had we had the time, the difference between your approach to writing homilies for the, the, the sermon, for the service, yeah. and writing short stories, um, mm-hmm. there, are they very similar kinds of writing in your mind or are they different? Uh, they're different. Um, they're different. I, I don't write out my homilies. So I usually begin with a, a short, uh, you know, um, an anecdote, you know, or some a story of creation or myth and then try to draw in the people and, you know, use the, you know, then get back to the gospel and the readings of the day and uh, try to take this word of God and break it open uh, for the people to understand before we get to the Eucharist. Because in our Catholic tradition, in our Christian tradition, the word became flesh. So if people have a better understanding of what the Bible is saying during, you know, the, the, the homily and how this applies to their lives, something to take back home for a week. You know, if people have that understanding, when it comes to, you know, Holy Communion, it becomes more natural. Okay, the word has become flesh at that at that point. Uh, so it's... Um, it's it's different, but I think my you know my growing comfort around storytelling, you know, has made it um, also comfortable to me, and reassuring to me. Say in a homely situation, or when I have to you know to speak you know to Christians and to and to groups to make presentations, yeah, and even to read the Bible, the Gospels, you know, uh, with with the the hope of telling a story you know uh, i i'm not stiff i you know i i want to to read that as a story first and foremost to the people and they of course they know it's the life of christ it's a sacred story but uh, sometimes the way these things are being read in church uh, people go to sleep yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to keep them awake with a good story. Yeah. 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 Do you feel also that people in the world are sort of going to sleep about what's happening in the world and that that might be some of the impetus between, behind the stories that you choose to tell in your fiction? Yeah. Um, you know, you are asking me about settings and how I seem to go all over Africa, you know, to tell the, you know, the. The stories. Um, I realized that uh, people are not aware of what is happening in in a place like Africa. I mean, it could be Asia, it could be Latin America, and you know, the powers that be, the people who really detect this world, um, they don't. They don't know the 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 much they know. They see it written in, you know, in a, a newspaper or some TV, you know, clip, um, and I usually feel that's 
not enough. What would it feel like to really um, enter into the mind of a six-year-old child or a 10-year-old child and see how this child is living daily? You know, when we say somebody's living under a dollar a day, uh, it might not mean mean much to an American. It might be difficult for such a person to, you know, to you know, it might be difficult for whoever hears this to imagine, you know, uh, just because the standard of living here is higher. Um, so, how do we get into this situation? Um, and I, I, you know, in the past 16 years, I've been a Jesuit. I've only lived in one place for three years. I'm always moving, being moved around. And I, you minister to people in very different contexts and situations. Uh, and even you go back to your village in Ikotok Baneda in Nigeria, and your mom says to you, so my son, how is Kenya? You know, and you realize you have a story to tell. You don't have the words. You cannot come up with the pictures, or you know, somebody asks in a, in Nigeria. You know, you were talking about this situation in Lagos. What did you mean? Um, so I felt if I could write stories about these different places, uh, it would be a, a, a you know a good thing even for Africans, who you know we do not even know what is happening in our continent and uh, things are so tough that we do we need to even discover and analyze what is happening before us um so that's you know i started thinking about you know short stories um and i wanted to say something about the different situations in africa say child soldiers what does it mean for an eight-year-old to be given an AK-47 and being asked to kill the mom and the dad. Now, if they have slaughtered their moms and their dads, why should they spare you in the in the bush? And how do you bring back these children? You know, um, so there's a lot happening in our continent, uh, and I I always feel I need to say something. I need to say something about this but not in a you know in a in a in a you know using fiction mm-hmm. uh uh because i feel that's more inviting to people you know is less judgmental uh normally when we see a poor person in this country you know in many instances you see a poor person walking on this side of the road you move to the other side because you are afraid uh um so you could even see in a place like this, this is happening. We tend not to be able to see the very poor and vulnerable anymore before us. Uh, we are protecting ourselves. Uh, we don't know what will happen. It's not our fault. You know, poor people are the reason they are poor. Uh, if they worked as hard as, you know, we <laughs> we are working, uh, you know, they would be, they would be fine. Um, so this, you know, and I thought about this, I'm like, these children are born into these difficult situations. Uh, they're struggling. They're, they're brave about it. Maybe I should, you know, help them say something about their situation. Do you have an idea for how you would like, once people see, so once once folks are invited into stories and are faced with a seven-year-old who's given an AK-47 and told to kill his parents or um, a, a, a young girl who has to... Um, go into prostitution in order to get a Christmas dinner for her family. Um, 
once people <coughs> see the poor people walking on the other side of the street, do you think that, what do you think that does? That opportunity of vision or that um, unavoidable seeing? Yeah. Um, one of my best uh, passages in the Bible is actually very short. Um, you know, Jesus is saying to people, come and see. That's all he said to some of the apostles. He did not say, come and live with me, come and change the world, come and take Christianity to the farthest limits of the world. No, come and see. And there is something to seeing. Once you have seen something, you cannot unsee. Um, so for me, it's very important that you see this first and foremost as stories. You know, you are moved by them. Um, and you feel you, you know a bit about these characters and these situations. Now, the second level activity of, you know, action, um, the AK-47, these kits are using, they're not made in Africa. No. Okay. They're made somewhere. And uh, somebody's benefiting from this arm um, race, uh, from these guns being sold. Um and these people are making money for their countries uh, and their children are not suffering like our children are suffering. Um, somebody is stealing all the money in Africa and putting it in some banks in Switzerland and other countries in Europe and even in your country. If it is not bank, they are buying big buildings in this country. Whereas if, I, if somebody sends me a check from New York, which is another state, before it gets to me here in Annabelle, it takes five days to clear at the bank. So how come somebody brings $1 billion from Africa and you let that enter the bank? You know, um, somebody, uh, you know, Ashley, if in my place, if somebody steals money and brings it to you and you keep that money, you are a thief. You know, it's as simple as that. I mean, in this country, if somebody steals something and you keep that thing in your place, uh, when the police come, you have questions to answer. So why is this being allowed in our world? Uh, a big part of the problem is our leaders in Africa have betrayed us. So why does the Western world also have to betray us? Um, this money that goes to Switzerland, the diamond money that goes to the West, who is buying these diamonds? Um, these things go, and the money from that, this stolen money is used to make life comfortable for the children of Switzerland, the children of America, all over the, all over the place. So these are the things the big institutions, the powerful countries need to do. And we need to see as individuals in order to yeah, understand. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to take a short break because it's the top of the hour. And so we have to do our station ID, which you know, you have been hosting the show before, no? So it's time for that formal moment of it's WCVN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. This is the Living Writers Show. I, my guest today is Uim Akpan, and we'll be right back after a short break. Thank you. 
Ashley David, you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Uim Akpan, Jesuit priest and fiction writer from Nigeria, with us um, for a bit longer before he heads off to Zimbabwe. Um, you've been in Ann Arbor for the last two two years, a little more than two years, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the last segment of the show, we were talking about... Um, how and where you choose to set your stories and which stories you choose to tell and and this importance of seeing and then making the linkages between what's going on um, internationally in terms of power and dominance and who's paying the biggest price um, for such things. Um, And I wonder if a lot of the, I mean, the story that um, you first published in The New Yorker two summers ago is again about a, a family in um, living on the streets of Nigeria um, glue sniffing and the oldest, Nairobi uh, uh, sorry Kenya. Uh, yes I'm so sorry yes in Nairobi yeah. I totally lost my lost my ends there um, in Nairobi um, glue sniffing and um, the elder daughter uh, is a prostitute in order to help support the family um, and they're very poor and then this next story that just came out um, this last summer is about a family in Rwanda during the genocide um, and I'm wondering these subjects are um, both true and just sort of inexplicably horrible um, but in order to write them I imagine you have to sort of inhabit these characters and really get down in the emotion of what these children are going through and I'm wondering where you find the inspiration and the strength to to do that yeah um, I, I go back often to my faith and then friends and family um and many times i say to myself uh, these children in this situation they can still crack a joke and smile and they're brave about it so let me who is trying to write about their situation not be killed <laughs> by the writing it you know itself so the the you know the people caught up in this conflict they also provide a lot of uh, a lot of uh, energy for me to write, you know, write on. Uh, this is not to say it's not, you know, um, difficult. It's some days, some nights, it's very difficult for me. I I would just like to read from Second Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, I think it's uh, chapter four. Um, we are only the earthenware jars that hold this treasure to make it clear that such an overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. We are in difficulties on all sides, but never cornered. We see no answer to our problems, but never despair. We have been persecuted, but never deserted, knocked down, but never killed. Always Wherever we may be, we carry with us in our body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus too may always be seen in our body. Yeah, these are some of the passages I I hang on to on those rough, <laughs> rough <laughs> those nights rough of, nights from eleven <laughs> to three. <laughs> yeah, rough nights of, of you know fiction, and you you know the anxiety of writing. Will something come out of this? Uh, not now that I've gotten into the New Yorker or have a contract with Little Brown, but beginning and thinking, am I? You know, why should I be sitting down and doing this instead of, say, going to, you know, actually be with people, teach more catechism, you know, uh, go out and do stuff, spend more time with some friends who are actually in this situation, you know, too. Um, so, yeah, I get a lot of encourage, a lot of encouragement from these different sources I have mentioned. Do you still feel a little guilty sometimes when you're sort of there writing and not out doing work with the people? Or, or are you now sort of feeling like um, your work is to be doing the writing so that and while other people can be out with? Uh, no, I, I don't feel the guilt, you know, anymore. Um, at some point... I have been told by my superiors, your mission now includes this, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, when I was ordained in 2003, I went to work in a secondary school, and that's you know where I was the principal, a vice principal. And uh, you know, I had to show up at uh, 7:30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, and do the you know do the work. Uh, but I also had to find time and do the writing and uh, so i'm figuring out how to you know how to you know how to do this it would be very easy for me to just sit in a room all day and uh, do fiction it would, would it would you be happy just to sort of lock yourself away and, uh, and no not at this point it, i would also be, it will be also very happy for me to work you know, uh, full time, say in a in a in a in a ministry, say in a parish ministry, or you know wherever the priest has to, you know has to be. So I, I I'm dealing with this, uh, you know, two uh, uh, forces. Um, I you know they interrelate mm-hmm. uh, because you see many of our Jesuits in Africa they are working with refugees, they are working with street children. They are working with, uh, you know, people in very difficult places. Uh, and these people are very happy to to say, oh, thank you for this story. This talks about our situation. Could you come to our apostolate and say something? And they don't have to pay me to come. Ah, yeah. yes. So <laughs> they, they're, the they're happy yeah. about that. <laughs> and, and, and you see, um, maybe I should say this now that uh, I have a contract, uh, you know, all the proceeds I make, everything goes back to the Society of Jesus, to you know, to the to the church. So you know, people are happy also that you know you're also raising funds for right. the work you know they're you know they're doing. So I don't feel a lot of guilt as I used to you know, at the beginning. Well, and when you finish, you, you at the end of this month, you'll be heading back to Africa. Only this time, I believe, you're going, is it to Zimbabwe? Zimbabwe, yes. And will you be teaching there, or what's, will, or will you have time to write? How is that, that new assignment going to work for you? Yeah, for the longest time, my superiors have been planning that I would go and teach 
in Zimbabwe. It's a seminary. It's uh, people, excuse me, who are getting their first degree in philosophy, you know, because the church, you know, asks of that, uh, of the priests. Um, so it's college level. These are guys in their early 20s. So I'll be teaching English composition. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we are still working out the, you know, my schedule so that I can teach and write. Mm-hmm. So I, I have hope that it will work out. And I'm actually happy to go there because uh, the place is made up of uh English-speaking Jesuits, you know, from all over Africa. So it's quite a pull to if if they, if I'm able to teach them something about the writing process, about uh, witnessing through writing, then they can take this to their different countries and hopefully help other people. Yeah. Well, I want to, We're we're getting close to the end of the show, but the 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 last sort of big question I'd like to ask you is about. Um, the role geography plays in a child's life. Um, you mentioned when you were talking about the, the characters in your stories that they're going through these horrible experiences, but they also can tell a joke and they can laugh and they find um, humor and, and levity in some of the worst situations imaginable. Um, you, Since you've been in Michigan, you've been um, ministering to communities in Detroit and also Ann Arbor. And then you've been working in many parts of um, of Africa. How do you think that geography changes childhood or one's options? Um, when you see children here versus children that you encountered in Kenya when you were studying there um, or in Nigeria, um, is is there something sort of common about childhood or do the circumstances of life really change childhood as a as an experience? Uh, yeah, I, fundamentally. Yeah, I believe there is uh, something common, not only about childhood, but about human beings. Which is why you can read this story here in Annabelle, and the stories hopefully touch you, and you say, "Oh, these are real characters," in spite of, you know, their situations. For me, that's the story. Um, how people relate with each other and how we love and use each other in our families. Um, what what surprises me here, uh, America is a very rich country and people have access. Um, but it surprises me that there is child suicide. Whereas in our continent, where you don't have a lot of you know, riches and children are actually struggling. Uh, it's not something I hear about. I first heard it here in 1993 when I, you know, I came. And I was like, you know, I was like when uh, you were studying in Nebraska, Nebraska in college, Nebraska. Yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, what is you know what is this? Um, but you know, you can also look at America and understand how that has you know. Uh, uh, come to come to be um it really pains me in this country that um the access to guns how many times don't we hear a child picking up one of these guns and doing a lot of violence you know um why do we need this many guns uh 
and I know Mr. Clinton tried to do something about that, but the gun lobby is very big in this country. They have yes. a lot of a, lot of a, a right to bear arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They have a lot of they have a lot of power. Uh, but again, our children are being endangered, and I've just learned that there are children here in Annaba sniffing sniffing glue. Which yeah. is the subject of your story, yeah, yeah, Feast, yeah. Partly. So you can see this common, you know, you can see this common uh, uh, trends, uh, common uh, humanity. If people, if children are using guns in Africa as child soldiers to kill, you know, other people, you also see guns are available here, so much so that a child can carry this and walk into uh, a secondary school, a high school, and just you know wipe out teachers and you know. Um, so yeah, there is a common, a common humanity. I I believe in that you know so much that we can stand with each other because of these commonalities. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's it's flown by the forty five minutes. Um, I survived you. You survived. We both survived. <laughs> I'd like to thank Chaz Barrett for engineering the show so skillfully as always. Hello, Chaz. <laughs> And Uam Akban, my guest, for joining me today. Thank you also for listening. This has been The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Next week, Rachel Harkai will be interviewing Christine Hume. Please stay tuned. The Sports Report is next. Thank you for the good work you're doing, Ashley. Papa may have, but God bless the 